That's Revelation chapter 5, starting at the beginning of the chapter. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might for ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the, eight, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So it's Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 12. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thorn bushes? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name 
and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Our subject over the next four weeks is one which we rarely hear spoken of. I asked a relatively experienced follower of Jesus who had trusted in him for several decades, and they told me they had never heard a talk on this matter. It's not an easy topic for us to discuss. When Jesus spoke of it, he did so with tears in his eyes. It is, however, a subject of which Jesus spoke pretty much more than any other. It lies behind God's purpose in sending Jesus and Jesus' willingness to come to earth in the form of a baby and die on the cross. Our method is to go to Matthew's Gospel, and here we will find references to this subject from the lips of Jesus, and multiple, multiple indirect ones as well. And our subject is the rarely mentioned subject of hell. I've called the series Hell from the Lips of Jesus. And as I say, the vast majority of our time will be in Matthew's gospel. Each week we'll focus on one particular section of the gospel. And this week, the most famous of all of Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. It's become something of a cliche to note that the Sermon on the Mount lies behind so much of the value system of the 21st century in our secularist cultures. Humanism arose from Jesus' teaching. Where do we find Jesus' teaching on hell in its most concentrated form? Well, in the Gospels, and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. The very place where we hear Jesus expand the golden rule, tell us that we should love our enemies and pray for those who are against us, and declare blessed are those who mourn, is the very place, the very sermon, in which Jesus speaks so much on the subject of hell. One other preliminary as we begin. It will be a hard few weeks. Hard for the preacher, hard for the listener. It is with no sense of delight or secret rubbing together of the hands in glee that we tackle this matter. For every one of us, it will impact not only ourselves and our understanding of the Lord Jesus and our faith in him, but also our consideration of our friends, our loved ones, family, colleagues, acquaintances. But be in no doubt, Jesus spoke of hell. He believed in hell. Hell is why he came. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish, but have eternal life. 
And so it is with tears in the eyes and love in the heart that we broach the matter. This week, Jesus believes in hell. Next week, people go to hell. The third week, hell is forever. And finally, Jesus died to save us from hell. Jesus believes in hell. That's our first point of three this afternoon. The Sermon on the Mount closes with Jesus outlining effectively two ways to live. So make sure you're there on page 979. You can see what's known as the golden rule in verse 12. And then enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. So there are two paths, two gates. One leads to destruction, the other to life. And then verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. There are two kinds of teacher. The one whose end is the fire, verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then there are two kinds of listener. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, rather the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on judgment day, verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then there are two kinds of building, two kinds of foundation to our lives. There's the life built on the sand of rejecting the Jesus teaching of Jesus. And verse 27, the rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew and beat against that house. It fell. Great was the fall of it. So Jesus believes in hell. Verse 13, the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is thrown into the fire. Verse 23, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 27, great was the fall of it. And if that isn't enough, simply in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, in the body of the sermon, we find more. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire, says Jesus. Verse 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better than you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better you lose one of your members and your whole body goes to hell. Jesus believes in hell. Very early on in time at St. Helens, I was taking one of these big city livery services. We used to hold them here back in the 90s. I spoke on the man or woman who builds their house on the sand. I spoke about the difference between heaven and hell and the reality of judgment. Over lunch, a lady, one of the livery ladies, turned to me and said, I'm so glad you're not one of those preachers who speaks about heaven and hell and Jesus who judges. If I were one of those preachers who did not speak of heaven and hell, I would never be able to call myself a Christian preacher. It was so much part of Jesus' teaching. Beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing. If you are here as a visitor, well, I'm so, so glad that you are with us. This eternal reality of a judgment day at the end of our lives, why, it shows us that we are not atomized individuals without beginning, without end, floating meaninglessly through the universe with no ultimate accountability. The decisions we take in this life matter. Jesus believes in hell. Hell is real. That is, Jesus believes in a real place called hell. Hell is not simply an idea or a concept. It's not merely the dark side of life or the sadness and suffering that people experience in life today. Hell is not simply a metaphor for the hard times. I've been through hell. You may have listened to the interview with Jordan Peterson conducted by Piers Morgan. He and his daughter Michaela were interviewed and the subject of Peterson's faith came up and he was quizzed on whether he was now a man who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe in God? I certainly believe in hell, he replied. Now, I'm not sure exactly what he meant, but I imagine at least part of it was that his life has been very troubling in the last five years. That's not quite what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus speaks of hell, he uses the word Gehenna. The word Gehenna comes from the Hebrew word Gehinnom. This is the valley of Hinnom. This valley was a ravine to the south of the city of Jerusalem, and in the Old Testament, it's the place where sacrifices were made and worship conducted to the ghastly pagan idol, Moloch. Child sacrifices were among the sacrifices made. Ours is not the only culture that disposes of unwanted babies. King Josiah made the Valley of Hinnom a dumping ground for filth and the corpses of criminals. In Jesus' day, it was still used as a vast garbage pit in which all the offal and waste and rubbish of the city of Jerusalem was tipped. And the detritus of human waste was set alight and burned in perpetual smoldering pits in the Valley of Hinnom. We might think of the rubbish tips outside the city of Dhaka or Calcutta or perhaps waste disposal sites above which the seagulls circle around the M25. Gehenna came to symbolize the place of final judgment and eternal punishment. Jesus speaking, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. It's better to enter life with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire, the Gehenna of fire. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to Gehenna? So commonly, Gehenna is hell, and you find it translated such all the way through Matthew's gospel. Hades is also mentioned And Hades is the place where the souls of those who live in rebellion against God and have already died await the final judgment of the last day. 
You may remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 17. And and the rich man is described as being in torment in Hades. His brothers are still alive. The final judgment hasn't come. He has died. His soul has gone to Hades. He is hell-bound. He is in torment as he waits. So there is no no man's land in the universe. There is no waiting room between heaven and hell. There is no soul sleep after death or period of unconsciousness where those who are hell-bound wait in oblivion. Just as the thief on the cross who turns back to God and turns to Jesus is told, today you will be with me in paradise, so those who reject Jesus go to Hades in conscious punishment where they await final confirmation and eternity in hell. Hell is a real place. Sometimes we hear people say that Jesus is speaking simply in picture language. He's clearly using exaggerated warning when he says it's better to have your hand cut off than to enter hell. But then we don't find the early disciples mutilating themselves. Clearly it's metaphorical. So surely the hell of fire is also exaggerated picture language. No. Hell is referred to as the place of torment. The word is for a physical place. Hell is repeatedly held out as a specific destination awaiting a specific point of judgment. Hell is a real place created by God for the punishment of sin. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his messengers. At the end, on the day of judgment, those who are hell-bound will be sent to hell, which was prepared for the devil and his messengers. Hell is a real place. It is a place of torment. It has a precise location. It is there in the final state of things. Why hold a series of four weeks at the start of a new year after all the joy and celebration of Christmas on the subject of hell? Because hell is real. Because Jesus warns of hell. Because the precise reason why Jesus came into this world was to save us from our sins. This is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to Save sinners. The salvation Jesus came to bring was a salvation from hell. Someone else might say, this talk of hell, it's frightening. It's almost hate speech. I feel triggered. You should be cancelled. Imagine that Japanese aircraft. The crew members used megaphones. They got them off in under 90 seconds. There were 379 passengers saved. Can you imagine somebody saying, oh, all these announcements of fire, it's hate speech. You should be cancelled. 
course they were warned. There was a real danger. What then is hell like? The teaching of Jesus and of the rest of the New Testament is deliberately, can I put it like this, non-comprehensive. That is, we're not given detailed, kind of minute-by-minute, fine-tuned description of what hell will be like. That should give a degree of caution to any preacher or thinker about hell. We are warned of hell. We're not given particular details. Various aspects are made clear. And the images we find on the lips of Jesus are as follows. Fire. The hell of fire and eternal fire. Destruction there in our passage. Separation, depart from me in our passage. Chapter 8, verse 12, outer darkness, literally the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that image of weeping and gnashing of teeth, so graphic, it comes one, two, three, four, five, at least six times on the lips of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. And then the image of eternal punishment in chapter 25. Some of us may be familiar with some of the artwork from the medieval ages and further on. Peter Bruegel the Younger, Hieronymus Bosch, The Garden of Earthly Delights, William Blake, Jan van Eyck, Pitchforks, Fire Pits, Distortion of Human Limbs, Scenes of utmost depravity. I don't think that's particularly helpful because the Bible doesn't give us such detailed picture. The great Dutch systematician Louis Burkhoff put it like this, total absence of the favor of God, endless disturbance of life, because of the complete dominion of sin. Positive pains and sufferings. Subjective punishments such as pangs of conscience and anguish. What will hell be like? Well, I haven't given you a descriptive word. It might be helpful to group it like this. A place of separation from the goodness of God, but not from God himself. In our passage, Jesus will say, depart from me. In chapter 8, verse 12, go out into the outer darkness. That same phrase is found on two other occasions in Matthew's gospel. This is a place of the absence of God's cheering light. In this creation, everyone is the beneficiary of what is known as common grace. We we experience the favor of God, friendship, rain in due season, health, the pleasures of this world. There will be none of these in hell. When God withdraws his blessing, only darkness is left. Light symbolizes purity and holiness and glory and hope. Darkness speaks of terrible trouble and affliction and fear 
and depravity. Someone might say jokingly, oh, well, hell, at least my friends will be there. No, no friendship in hell. So what will hell be like? Well, isolation cut off from the goodness of God, but not from God himself. God rules over hell. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, which is, in his own words, a fantasy, an imaginative supposal, and contains things which you won't find in the Bible, but it's an interesting read. He suggests that if earth in this life, is chosen instead of heaven. It will, for those who choose it, turn out to have been all along only a region in hell. I think we experience some of the ghastly realities of hell in this world as it finds itself in rebellion against God. Isolation, a place of punishment. Jesus speaks of the hell of fire, the fiery furnace, the eternal fire, and eternal punishment. He speaks of weeping and gnashing of teeth on at least six occasions. Does weeping suggest an inner pain? Gnashing of teeth, an outward pain? Together they suggest agony and anguish and heartache and grief and suffering. And hell is a place of punishment by God. Some have suggested that weeping implies regret or remorse over a failure to have made the right decision. I'm not persuaded by that. There's no repentance in hell. There's no way back. There's no second chance. There's no hope. There's no point in praying for the dead. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man shows no remorse, no regret, no repentance. The experience is one of eternal existence cut off from God's goodness, but with God present in judgment. And those in hell refuse to repent or bend or turn or change. They are set in everlasting rejection of God. Matthew's gospel finishes with Jesus announcing that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Paul tells us that at the last, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But those in hell will acknowledge his lordship, but refuse to receive it with ongoing expressions of rebellion and consequent disqualification from good God's goodness. Possibly the most helpful popular book on hell is by a man called Edward Donnelly, the biblical teaching on the doctrine of heaven and hell. Those who are in hell continue to sin, incurring more guilt to all eternity. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still, Revelation 22. There is a consequent accumulation of guilt forever and ever. This is what makes hell so wretched, so awful, so desperate. 
Someone might say, well, how can we know these things? And the answer is the same way we know anything about God. Jesus tells us these unseen and hidden realities of eternity. How do we know that God loves us? Jesus told us so. How do we know that God is good and just? Jesus shows us so. How do we know that God created the universe? God told us so. How do we know that's a new creation? Through God's revelation. And that is why no sooner has someone begun to reject Jesus' teaching on hell than everything else begins to head south. One last cross-reference to the work of Leon Morris, an outstanding essay, you can Google it, The Dreadful Harvest. Those who in modern times reject the whole idea of hell seem not to have realized the difficulties in dispensing with the concept. The kind-hearted humanitarians decided to improve upon Christianity. The thought of hell offended their susceptibilities. They closed the thought, and to their surprise, the gates of heaven closed also with a melancholy clang. You reject the idea of hell and of the devil and of judgment. No sooner do you do that than we reject the idea of Jesus and of God and of forgiveness. Well, we began with two ways to live. Two paths. One is narrow, the other is broad. One has a wide gate, the other a small. One has many on it, the other just a few. We shouldn't be at all surprised to find ourselves running against the tide. It need not unnerve us if we find the Christian life hard. There is a narrow path, and there are few on it, and there is a broad road, and the road leads to destruction. And we heard of two kinds of teacher. One tells us that all is fine. There really is nothing to worry about. Everything will be, will be okay in the end. There's no heaven above us and no hell below, in the fa- words of the famous song. Stay on the plane. Stop worrying. Drinks anyone? Duty free? And then we're told there are two kinds of follower. One taking seriously the warnings of Jesus with a sense of urgency and passion and seriousness and intensity. The other, oh so casual and relaxed. And there are two kinds of foundation. And when the storm of final judgment comes, one house will stand and the other fall. I was on a conference this week. And everybody on Preacher's Conference asked one another, well, what are you speaking on? And people kept coming up to me and saying, well, what are you speaking on? And I said, well, we're doing a short series on Jesus' teaching on hell, and it's going to take four weeks. And one person said to me, do you think there'll be anybody left in the church when you finish? And I said, well, I certainly hope there will, but ultimately that's not what matters, really. For those who do stay... This is what I'm hoping and praying for. A deeper sense of the majesty and sovereignty and holiness of God. He rules. A deeper awareness of the dreadful seriousness of sin. 
an appreciation of the extraordinary love of the Lord Jesus. A recognition of the plight of our friends and families, our loved ones, and an urgency, as we find in Matthew's gospel, to go and make disciples of all nations. Let me lead us in prayer. We pray, our Father, that in your kindness, you would write these eternal realities indelibly on our hearts that we might truly believe that we might truly believe them that nothing would snatch this truth away from us in Jesus name amen in Jesus name amen